Spiked is free and it always will be. There's no paywall and no subscriptions. We want to reach as many people as possible. But to do that, we need your help. If you support the work that we do, why not become a regular donor? As little as £5 a month is enough to make a huge difference. Whatever you can give is greatly appreciated, especially with all that's going on in the world at the moment. If you want to make a regular donation, then all you have to do is go to spiked-online.com and hit the red donate button in the top right corner. That's spiked-online.com and the red donate button in the top right corner. So you talked about Leah, you know, in that 500 yard race, she had the place of the person from Penn State. She removed the person who was 17th from being able to take part in the semi-finals. She removed the person who was ninth from being able to be in the final. She removed the person who was fourth from being on the medal podium because they didn't get there. And she removed the person who was second, who was the first biological female from being the actual champion of that event. So there was five women in that particular one event alone, you know, that lost out. So this isn't just about the odd person here and there. Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Sharon Davis. Sharon is a former Olympian swimmer. She has represented Great Britain in the Olympics and the European Championships and England in the Commonwealth Games. She broke numerous British swimming records. She won a silver medal at the 1980s Olympics in Moscow, and she has won gold, silver and bronze medals at the Commonwealth Games. After her career as a competitive swimmer, she worked extensively in the media as a TV presenter and a swimming commentator for the BBC. She's also worked closely with Disabled Sport England and the Sports Aid Foundation. More recently, Sharon has helped to rally numerous other female athletes to defend women's sports and to keep women's sports for women only. So Sharon, you have been speaking out, uh, I think over the past three years, you've become one of the clearest and fairest voices on the need to protect women's sports. In this instance, to protect women's sports from the inclusion of trans women or biological males. And I wanted to ask you, I wanted to start off by asking you what made you speak out? Because this is not always an easy issue to speak out on. And I want to get into that a bit later on too. It can get you a lot of flack. It can get you a lot of heat. What made you think I need to speak out on this issue? Thank you, Brendan. Yeah, it has. It has been quite a long journey, actually. Um, the IOC changed the rules quite considerably to self-identification in 2015, and then they changed them again very recently to reduce any form of testosterone suppressant whatsoever. And I suppose the biggest reason I speak out is that during the 70s and the 80s, we had the East German doping system going on, and I was part of that generation that really suffered from that. So these young East German girls were put through male puberty, given very old-fashioned steranable testosterone as they were going through puberty to develop male strength. And they totally dominated the world of women's sport in things like swimming, track and field, rowing. So my Olympic Games in 1980, they won 90% of the medals. And in fact, in the women's events, in the women's event only. And in fact, in most of the events, I think bar about three, they took first, second and third for a tiny little country and didn't have... 
I mean, I think they took less than 3% of the medals in the men's events. And this went on for unabated for 20 years, you know, where the IOC did absolutely nothing. They had East German doctors sitting on the doping panels. So, of course, a generation of young girls lost their opportunities, lost their medals, lost their places, lost their opportunities to have a career off the back of that success. I know British girls that were forced, that no one has ever heard their names, that would have been Olympic champions. Um, and I just didn't want a whole generation of young girls to, to go through the same process. To get to the ultimate end result, which was that males are stronger than females and faster than females, which is evident in every single Olympic event, bar things like show jumping, where you're sitting on a horse and the horse mm. is the engine. So, you know, this isn't rocket science. This is just basic common sense. Um, and I was just getting incredibly frustrated that the IOC were not listening to proper doctors, were not doing scientific research. So about three years ago, I got 60 of my friends who were all Olympic medalists and world champions to sign a letter to the IOC and say, please do the research first. Don't change the rules until you have the evidence that you can remove male puberty benefit. And they didn't. They took no notice of it whatsoever. In fact, for months, I didn't even acknowledge that the letter had arrived. And so that's the biggest reason, I suppose. I just did not want, you know, to, for the same thing to happen again. And I am I, so disappointed with the IOC. As an organization, they do absolutely nothing to maintain the integrity of fair sport, whether that's, you know, Russians doping or picking countries with terrible, um, you know, humanity records. I mean, they, they and 4% of everything they earn goes back to the athletes. 4% of what the IOC gets from sponsorship and TV rights goes back to the athletes. That's a very good outline. And I, I've got a couple of questions later on about the IOC and the rules and, and why the rules don't work for women. But I wanted, you mentioned there your own experience, and I wanted to ask you about that. Because when I look at the image of, for example, Leah Thomas, who is six foot four and has been through male puberty, is obviously very different to the female swimmers that Leah Thomas is competing against. Um, I always think, I wonder how those female swimmers feel jumping into the pool, diving into the pool and knowing that they probably will lose or there's a good chance that they will come <laughs> second or third rather than first. And of course, you know how that feels because you are an Olympian and when you were competing in the Olympics, as you say, countries like East Germany were involved in extraordinary doping scandals where they were essentially abusing their female athletes um, and and pressuring them or forcing them to take testosterone and to transform their bodies radically. So how did it feel for swimmers like you standing by the side of the pool about to compete, knowing that there were cheats, uh, they were forced to be cheats essentially. So we can't really blame the young girls involved, but knowing that there was, there were cheats right next to you and they had a, a, a very good chance of beating you unfairly. How does that feel for an athlete? frustrating you know that's the word that, that i suppose is the the most prominent is the frustration that people are not standing up for fair sport that people are not that they can throw women's sport under the bus so very easily which is exactly what happened in the 70s and the 80s and you know the number of times i talk about it now and people go oh did you know what was going on of course we knew what was going on you know it was it was as obvious as the nose on your face. You know, these people would turn up having never raced in the junior program. We'd never seen them before. They'd never made the usual transition from being a good junior to being a good senior. They would just arrive on the Olympic program or the world championship program or Europeans or wherever and just smash a world record. You know, it doesn't happen like that. They looked and sounded like men. They had Adam's apples, five o'clock shadows, 
you know, and as you mentioned, they were very much the victims in this as well. So again, you know, I hold the IOC responsible for that. And many of these girls have died since. Mm -hmm. They've had disabled children, they're on heart pills, you know, that their, their lives have been shortened and, and really debilitated because of the drugs that they were allowed to be given by the East German state, by the IOC, who did nothing to stop it. And it just makes me so very angry. And at the time, my dad was my coach, and he had, I think it was three or four people on the Olympic team for Moscow, and I was the only individual female medalist from the whole of the British team at that particular Olympic game. So we had some relay medals, but no individual medals whatsoever. And yet he was never picked as an international coach because he spoke out against this. Mm-hmm. So it's such a fallacy to say that we didn't know. You know, we did know exactly the same as we know now that it's unfair to have male bodies in female sport. So we don't need, you know, to, to have 10 years of women losing races to know this. We know this already. And that's what makes me so terribly cross. So the word is frustration, you know, yeah. and I'm, I'm back being frustrated. And I suppose I'm in, a, I'm in a luckier position that I'm retired. I'm not reliant on sponsorships. But having said that, Brendan, I mean, I've lost so much work. Yeah. You know, I've even had charities remove my name from ambassador roles, because, which I've been with for 20 or 30 years because I do that, because I speak out, you know, and I've never been disrespectful. I believe wholeheartedly that sport is for all and that it should be inclusive, but it doesn't have to be inclusive at the cost of, you know, another group of, of society's rights to fair sport. Yeah, absolutely. So when I think about the experience of former Olympians like you and uh, what strikes me is that it seems that we now recognize that the use of synthetic testosterone in the past was bad. That's generally acknowledged now that it was a bad thing to make it's still those... bad. It's, it's, it's banned, you know, it's on yeah, the banned list. Exactly. So if I was to take synthetic testosterone to increase my levels to what Emily Bridges or Leah Thomas is allowed to use, here's the irony, I would receive a four-year ban yeah. instantly. That's right. And so, and that's what is so extraordinary about this. So synthetic testosterone is seen as bad. It's banned. You will be punished if you go near it. And yet natural testosterone or the, the benefits that accrue from going through male puberty, from having that, that uh, rush of testosterone that goes through a young man's body, that's seen as an acceptable form of doping, I guess, if you're competing against a woman. You are allowed to have experienced natural testosterone, but you're banned from taking synthetic testosterone. And I want to ask you, swimming is obviously your sport. That's what you were a champion at. And I want to ask you about Leah Thomas. And this is not to pick on Leah Thomas. This is simply... No, and these people have been put in the middle, haven't they? You know, yeah. it's not Leah's fault. It's not Emily Bridges's fault. Having said that, we do have transgender men, biological females that are transitioned, and they are choosing to race yeah. in the women's category. That's right. So I'm not yeah. going to alleviate all of the blame from these people because, you know, Emily in particular has been racing as a man, as, Le- as Leah did when, when she was Will. And even since Emily has supposedly transitioned for the last year, she's been racing as a man and very successfully in the man's category. So it's very doable. It only seems to be transgender women. Biological men are insisting that they race in the opposite category. So, you know, it it, it is a quagmire and it does sound very, very complicated. But actually, in reality, it's not. It's just race 
based on our biological sex. Yeah, absolutely. And as you say, I mean, these individuals, they do make a choice to take part in these sports and it should strike most people, I think, as an unfair thing to do. So they do bear some of that responsibility. But they have been in the middle of very bad policy, you know, so I will acknowledge that wholeheartedly. And that has been a pass-the-buck exercise from the IOC down to the, the governing bodies. And all of them have been have been woeful in doing the science first. So on that so, precise issue of the science, and uh, you have convinced me of this probably more than any other people when, when you've been talking about the fact that even if a trans woman, a, a biological male, even if they suppress their testosterone, which they are obligated to do, uh, there are still huge benefits that come from having been through that uh, puberty experience. So could you just explain to us, with someone like Leah Thomas, for example, because swimming is what you know, what are the benefits that Leah Thomas will have had through going through that biological experience that the female swimmers just don't have? Yeah, I mean, first of all, you mentioned, you know, Leah's height. Leah is just underneath six foot four. So straight away, males are taller. Swimmers in particular are a tall race. You know, you will find us at the Olympic Games. All the tall blokes are in the sprints. All the tall girls are in the girls' sprints. But we're not six foot, just underneath six foot four. Most of the top female sprinters are around the five foot 11, six foot height. Whereas the, the male sprinters will be anything up to six foot six, you know, in lots of the real 50s and things like that. So there's sort of the physiological benefits from just the size, the size size of your hands, the size of your feet, because these are your paddles, of course. It's lung capacity, it's bone density, um, it's muscle memory. You know, this is 21 years of of being still a male, you know, even though he identifies as a woman, he's still biologically male. So identifying as a man and competing in man's sport. And those things will not be removed. So even if someone has a, let's just say, 12% advantage between a male and female performance, and we can remove 6% of that, you're still giving someone a 6% advantage when we spend millions of pounds every year trying to stop people from doping to get the Mm. tiniest advantage whatsoever. Mm. So what actually is the point to WADA and the World Anti-Doping Agency if we don't care about advantages in sports? You know, this is sort of the the, the ridiculous side to it. So you're never going to be able to remove male physical advantage, not all of it. You know, you may be able to remove a third of it or you may even be able to remove a half of it, but you will certainly never be able to remove all of it. Mm. So that's why it's just not feasible. And, And that's why I've offered up the you know, the female classification and the open classification, because that is a way to be inclusive. The majority of transgender men choose to carry on racing in the female category and not take testosterone, which is absolutely fine. Nobody has an issue with that. We've seen that many times. But there are transgender men who are on testosterone. And if we don't have an open classification, there's nowhere for them to race. But no one ever talks about them because they're not a threat to anybody. Absolutely. And then in relation to something like cycling, I've heard you speak about the benefits of male physiology in relation to cycling too. So we have people like Emily Bridges, we have uh, Rachel McKinnon and, you know, born males who are doing well in cycling in a way that is not really fair. And in relation to what happens to the pelvis, for example, during puberty and and the, the, the female pelvis, could you just explain a little bit about why having gone through that male experience also could prove beneficial in a sport like cycling, for example. Yeah, absolutely. Cyclists will tell you that they have what's called a Q angle, which enables them to put more power through uh, you know, their legs. So the mm. Q angle is exactly that, Brendan. It's the angle between your hips and your knees. So female athletes in particular, we are really susceptible to knee injury because the angle is bigger. 
because a woman's hips because of childbirth is bigger. So if you just had a picture, then the angle, you know, from the hip to the knee would be wider, which creates more stress and therefore creates more injury, but enables more power to be directed through the legs in a man. And again, with Emily Bridges, that that benefit will never, ever be able to be removed. When races are won by hundredths of a second at elite level, you know, these things are all terribly important. So, yes, I mean, it's back to the sort of physiology of it, of it just not being able to be removed. And somehow all the grey suits in the offices just decided, well, women's sport didn't matter enough to us to worry about that. So we'll just be all inclusive and throw it, you know, throw it under the bus. And that just makes me so cross when women's (laughs) sport have worked so hard for so long. We're still nowhere near parallel. You know, you've only got to go on the pages of The Times or The Guardian or any newspaper, (laughs) Telegraph, and look at the sports stories. And you'll get 10, maybe 12, before you might get to one women's sport. Um, you know, the money, the prize money that's involved in sport, uh, the profile on television. You know, we're still fighting like crazy to try and get better profile. And it has been improving a lot. But this is a big step backwards. Hi, it's Fraser here, producer of The Brendan O'Neill Show. At Spiked, we want you, our readers and listeners, to have the freedom to go about your business online without the prying eyes of big tech watching over your shoulder. And with the UK government's online safety bill potentially handing even more power to internet companies, the internet is about to become a lot less free. But with ExpressVPN, you really can get your online activity back under your control. For instance, whenever I go online with ExpressVPN, my IP address is completely hidden and my identity is anonymized by a secure VPN server. Plus, ExpressVPN encrypts 100% of my internet data for protection from hackers and eavesdroppers. ExpressVPN is by far the best VPN I've tried. It's the VPN that's rated number one by Business Insider and countless other tech publications. And what I love most about ExpressVPN is that it couldn't be easier to use. The app has one button, you tap it and you're protected. It's that simple. So stop letting big tech and the government censor and track you. Take back control of your data and protect yourself at expressvpn.com slash Brendan. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash Brendan to get three months for free. Visit expressvpn.com slash Brendan to learn more. So one thing I want to ask you is about who is speaking out and and why that is the case. So, for example, there are trans women in sports right now taking part against women and in many cases beating them. And I find it incredibly unfair and quite shocking that that is allowed to happen. But it tends to be former athletes who are speaking out. So for example, there's you, there is Martina Navratilova, there's Dame Kelly Holmes. The heroic Daley Thompson, of course, has lent his support to, to the women as well. It's the former athletes who are speaking out rather than the current athletes who are having, in many cases, to compete against these biological males. What do you think that tells us about the culture that exists around this discussion in women's sports? The fact that you have to have done all your sports in the past in order to be able to free to speak out about, about this problem today? Yeah, absolutely. There's a culture of fear in all sorts of things, you know, and, and this is uh, exactly the same. It's a culture of fear. It's that if you will speak out, the trans activists will do their absolute best to wreck your career. And they phone up your sponsors, they phone up television companies, 
you know, they, 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 they phone up jobs that you're about to do or that you're about to appear in and tell everybody that you're transphobic. And so therefore, how dare these companies employ you? And they do their best to get you cancelled or blacklisted. Mm. And so the young athletes find it very difficult because they're not old enough. They're worried about their careers. They're being advised by their governing bodies to keep their heads down. Mm. I was very proud of the cyclist girls. You know, they were going to boycott. And, and that is why the UCI decided to step in and tell British Cycling that this was not acceptable, that her licence um, hadn't actually changed from registered as a male to being registered as, as a woman. And therefore, you know, that, that incident was stopped. And now the ICU are talking about talking to track and field and talking to FINA, which is the world swimming body, about coming together for a unilateral discussion and maybe, you know, some some better science and some better rules. But but why have we had to get this far before they've done that? You know, that's what's so extraordinary. And the good thing is that FINA are bringing out some very good rules. I mean, USA Swimming decided um, in the middle of the NC2As to change their rules to three years of reduced testosterone to five nanomol. Five nanomol is still five times what most females have, by the way, and also to have a panel of three medical advisors that a trans athlete would have to prove that they had no biological benefit before they were allowed to compete which basically would stop transgender women, males, from competing because they wouldn't be able to prove that there isn't a, you know, a residual benefit from being male. So the NC2As chose not to, to accept that, and Leah was allowed to compete. And she went from being you know, 500th at the university-level competition, which, by the way, doesn't include the whole of America, that's just universities, mm. to being number one and beating three American Olympic silver medalists. And also the problem we've got is that we can't judge when people throw races. You know, no one talks about that either. So Leah went in and she won the first race, which was the 500 metres. Then I think she came sixth in the next one. And then she came eighth in the next one, having recorded much faster times earlier in the season and also dropping one and a half seconds between the heat and the final in the 100, which is unheard of. Yeah. So, you know, again, we have to look at what these athletes are doing, what they're capable of doing, and what they're showing us they can do because it fits their agenda. You know, these are all things. And which is why, thank goodness, you know, the World um, Coaches Association in Swimming, which has 22,000 members, have pressed FINA very strongly to do something to protect female athletes. So in relation to uh, that culture of fear that exists around this issue and the culture of censorship that exists around this issue, uh, I wanted to ask you what you think is driving that. So, um, as I said earlier, I find you to be one of the most reasonable and convincing voices on this issue. You've never said anything prejudiced. You've never said anything transphobic at all. I've got friends that are transgender. I've got parents that have got transgender children. You know, I have absolutely no issue. And I believe wholeheartedly people should be able to live their life authentically and present themselves in a, in a way that makes them happy. But I will not believe that you can change biological sex. Yeah. Absolutely. But but what's striking is that even people like you and others who make that very calm, convincing case that people should be able to live freely, but we need to protect women's sports, we need to protect women's spaces, we need to protect women's rights, and we need to have that discussion about how to do that, you will still be branded phobic and a bigot and hateful and someone who ought to be cancelled. And that comes from, um, not from ordinary trans people, but from the trans lobby, and then they're kind of woke allies in the media and on social media. What do you think that culture of intolerance is about? Is Do you think there's an element of 
misogyny, you know, shut up women, how dare you speak out? Or is there a, an element of fear amongst some in the trans lobby about their ideas being questioned too firmly or too openly? What do you think drives that instinct to clamp down on anyone who raises questions about this issue? I definitely think there is a rise in misogyny. Um, you know, I'm a child of the 60s. <laughs> and my mum, I remember my mum telling me that when she fought, bought her first house with my dad, she wasn't even allowed to be on the mortgage. Mm. You know, so there was a whole generation of women that weren't suffragettes, but they were on the next level on, the 60s yeah. and the 70s, that fought for women to get more equality. And I just feel we're taking massive steps backwards at the moment, you know, and it's almost as if these trans activists have been given a right to be so abusive I mean, we talk about Twitter and Twitter really is not a, a true reflection of, of society, but it, you know, it has a lot of power. And on Twitter, women can be threatened with murder and rape and they do nothing. Whereas if you mispronounce somebody, you're removed forever. You know, it's just, it's ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous. So it is, it is quite scary. I think you just have to have the courage of your convictions. My parents always said to me, you cannot please all the people all the time. And I suppose I spent my life realizing that if I've probably never met somebody in the street, I don't really care whether they're like me or don't like me, but I believe in my principles. Um, I would always treat people as I would expect people to treat me. You know, what's hilarious, Brendan, is I get called a racist every other day. And yet, you know, I have two mixed race children. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not because they think you're a racist. It's because they think they can beat you over the head with these words yeah. and shut you up. And that's what it's all about. So you have to be brave enough to know that that's exactly what they're doing. They're using it like a tool to silence you. And beyond that, I think that's absolutely right. And then so many other issues, I know sport is your issue, but so many other issues relating to women's rights get swept up in this, I would consider it a kind of hysteria or certainly a a quite regressive movement, the the, the trans lobby. But then, of course, you have... um, you know, the the idea that women should have their own domestic violence shelters, the idea that there should be women-only prisons is now under threat by the inclusion of biological males in the, in the female estate of prisons. And you have this new era opening up in which there is really a potential that people born male and people who are still male, to all intents and purposes, can enter into women's spaces, can take women's positions on women-only shortlists, for example, in politics, can take women's positions in terms of getting medals in sports and so on. So there's a broader push, isn't there, against the idea that women should be able to organise freely as they see fit and to have their own spaces, their own sports and their own rights. Is that something that the broader issue concerns you too? Yeah, it concerns me to the point that I obviously research it and I'm aware of it and I think it's part of understanding the problem. I try not to be too vocal about it because it's not my area of expertise, whereas sport Mm. is. You know, I've lived and breathed it since I was 11 when I first competed for Great Britain. And I'm 60 this year. So that's a really long time that I've been around international sport and understand it incredibly well. So I sort of stick, you know, stick to my area of expertise, but absolutely, you know, and I think shutting down debate is terribly wrong. We need to be able to talk about these things. If there's a conflict of interests, we need to find solutions. For example, you talked about rape refuges. Well, then let's have the transgender community who have got great funding, by the way, huge amounts of money that comes into Stonewall, let them sort out their own refuges. We know why can we not turn around as a society and go, right, we can have female-only spaces for those that are incredibly vulnerable and are frightened to have been in to a, a too close a location to someone that is male, then let's keep them there, give them their space because that is a human right and they, they are deserve that care. 
And then those that are transgender women who are also being victimized and are vulnerable and, and they should have their space as well. So there are ways that we can make sure that all parts of society are looked after without throwing another section of society under the bus. You know, there hasn't been a, a death in this country, I don't think, of a transgender woman now for coming on to three years. And yet we lose between two and three women every single week, every single week in this country, mm. you know, to male violence. I mean, it's extraordinary that it's not talked about more. Yeah. So on that issue you've raised about going back to sport and throwing people under the bus, i.e. women in this case, I want to ask you about what impact you think this might have beyond the events themselves. So we know that when Leah Thomas takes part in a particular event, that's a problem. That's going to raise problems for the female swimmers who've been training for a huge amount of, uh, of their lives. And as you say, some of them uh, who, who Leah Thomas beat are actual Olympic medalists, which is really shocking. But what, do you th- what impact do you think it has on girls who may be very sporty, may feel that sport is their future? You talked about being 11 years old and that's the first time that you competed for Great Britain. When girls, young girls who are not yet involved in competitions, not yet involved in professional sport, when they see this happening, there's a real possibility, isn't there, that it, they will think to themselves, well, I can never actually be a gold medalist if biological males are accepted into these sports. And it's going to have that knock-on effect down the generations, isn't it, in terms of limiting and lowering the horizons that young sporty girls might feel about what they want to do. Yes, absolutely. You know, it's... um it's not just about the elite level. It's about the grassroots re- level as well. I, I, I mean, I must admit, I have sent a tw- tweet the other day by somebody and it really broke my heart. It was a, a lady who had an 11-year-old daughter and her daughter came back from school and she said, Mum, why am I bothered to do sport if a boy can just take my place because he says he is a girl? And she didn't know how to explain to her child that it was worth still doing sport, you know, when that actually was a genuine possibility. So you talked about Leah, you know, let's just take the 500 free for an example. So it's 500 yards at the, the championships, which only really happens in American collegiate swimming because in Olympic swimming, we do meters. But, you know, in that 500 yard race, she had the place of the person from Penn State. She removed the person who was 17th from being able to take part in the semifinals. She removed the person who was ninth from being able to be in the final. She removed the person who was fourth from being on the medal podium because they didn't get there. And she removed the person who was second, who was the first biological female, from being the actual champion of that event. So there was five women in that particular one event alone, you know, that lost out. So this isn't just about the odd person here and there. You know, there are lots of people. We had the same situation with Laurel Hubbard in the weightlifting at the Olympic Games, and we're now going to have the same situation with Emily Bridges in cycling. And it's not about so much Laura Kenny. It's about the person that won't even get on the team to be able to train because she will take a female's place in the squad being able to train going forward. So it's the knock-on effect going down. And at the same mm-hmm. time, you know, as you say, it's, it's not inspiring young girls that we already have a massive problem with drop-off in sport to want to be involved in sport if they feel that their, their hopes and their dreams are going to be threatened. And my frustration is that we don't set categories in sport based on feelings. We set yeah. categories based on biological realities. But no one ever considers the feelings of the athletes that are being shoved aside. It's only ever the feelings of one group of society. Absolutely. And that actually uh, brings me on to a question I wanted to ask you about 
categorization in sport, because the thing I find really extraordinary is this notion that people like you are saying something completely outrageous and horrific by arguing that, you know, there should be a category just for biological women or, or women, as, as most of us refer to them. The idea that that's a preposterous thing to say or a bigoted thing to say is ridiculous because all sport is categorized. You wouldn't have a heavyweight boxer fighting with a, a lightweight boxer, for example. And, you know, boys and girls up to the age of 11 or 12 often compete against each other and it's not a problem. But after that, you they split off and they, they do their own things because obviously their bodies change enormously. So sport is all about categorization, isn't it? Absolutely. You mentioned it. You know, it's about the bantamweight not being able to go against the, the heavyweight. It's yeah. about the 15-year-old not being able to go in the under 10 race. It's about all the different classifications we have in the Paralympics so that we can try to create fair sport for everybody. And that's why we have male and female sport in the first place, so that females are able to win. Because if they didn't, they wouldn't win anything. You know, at the moment in America, there are 5,000 males that are able to run faster than the women's world record for the 100 meters, of which I think there, there are a few 15-year-olds in that, in that as well. Yeah. 5,000 just in America alone. You know, it's ridiculous. And, and you know, you have to compare elite athletes with elite athletes. We cannot have mediocre male athletes using this as some sort of, you know, retirement plan. Or it has to be the very best of the very best, given the opportunity. And that's, you know, was, was very much amplified with, with Leah. Leah was an okay male collegiate swimmer swam on the squad, didn't really win anything and would not have even made it to the NC2As as a male performer. And the irony as well is that when Leah was Will Thomas and competing for 21 years, their best event was the 1500 meters. So when Leah then transitioned, Leah all of a sudden became a sprinter. That's like Mo Farah deciding he wants to do the 100 meters. That's how ludicrous that was. But because of that explosive power that came with male biology, he was able, she was able, excuse me, to do exactly what they wanted to do, which was to pick any event that they fancy doing, basically. And that's what's wrong with this again as well. You know, you can't do that. It, it, you can't be a, a specialist 1,500-meter swimmer and then transition and become one of the world's best 100-meter swimmers. And that yeah. is only enabled because of your biology. That's very well described. And when you put it like that, it becomes even more alarming that this situation has been allowed to, to happen. So I wanted to bring it on to the question of solutions, because you are all one of the people who has actually put forward some proposals and some solutions to rectify this problem in a way that would be fair for everyone. So that women would have their own sports, which they ought to have. They have the right to have their own sports. Trans people could still take part in sports too. Um, so one of the things that you and others have proposed is an open category in sports, which would allow trans athletes to still take part in competition. So could you explain what that would entail, what, what, what that would look like? Yeah. I mean, I think there probably is, you know, in some circumstances, the actual men's categories often is the, the open category, but no one ever calls yeah. it that. Um, so you would have a protected biological female classification, which would be purely for biological females. And then you would have an open classification so that anyone that wishes to identify as a trans man or a trans woman could compete in the open classification. And Purely, really, rather than saying just compete by biological sex, that is enabling trans men who are on testosterone, which would be illegal, to be able to take part in the open category. So the most inclusive way for everyone to be able to compete would be biological female, 
and open because you wouldn't be excluding anybody. If you just had biological male and biological female, then it would be quite difficult for trans men, biological females on testosterone to go anywhere because they wouldn't be allowed in the women's classification and they wouldn't be allowed in the men's classification because they would be biologically female. So this to me seems the only you know sensible solution. And if you ask me, Brendan, if I put my house on it, providing I could give you a few years, I would. That This is where we will end up. But it annoys me that it's taking us so long and so many people are going to lose that in the process on the way. Mm. You know, it, it's all back to this thing that we don't need to have lots and lots of female athletes losing their places on teams, losing their medals, losing their opportunity to represent their country or their university to prove that males are stronger than females because we mm. already know that. So it's straight back to let's do the science first. Before we change the rules, let's do the science first. And then when we have that undisputable scientific evidence that we can remove every male puberty advantage, then yes, we can talk about doing this. But we never will, you know, because of the things that we've talked about. So it, it, it just makes me so very cross and I'm back <laughs> to being frustrated again. And I just think I could not with all conscience sit back when so few people spoke up for my generation and not speak up for this generation. And even yeah. though it's financially cost me a fortune, um, thank goodness my mum left me some money, sadly, when she died a few years ago, because I have lived off of that money. <laughs> I just thought I can't live with my conscience if I don't do something. That is what's extraordinary about this entire situation, which is that the women who do speak out tend to pay a high cost, whether it's literally a high cost in economic terms because certain doors will be closed to you or certain opportunities will be shut off, or a high cost in terms of losing one's job, vicious abuse, rape threats, death threats, which even happened to someone like JK Rowling, who's obviously in a far more comfortable position than most people, but she still gets that incredible amount of abuse. And one thing I wanted to ask you is what kind of toll does it take when you are speaking out on something which to the vast majority of people sounds perfectly fair and rational? And I think most people out there would agree with you that women's sports needs to be protected from this new idea, this new ideology. What kind of toll does it take when you say something perfectly reasonable uh, and yet you get this kind of extraordinary pile on and, and blowback from a small but very noisy group online? Yeah, I, I think it's back to just your feeling that you have to do something about it. Mm. Um, and to me, you know, having a clear conscience was more important than my bank balance. And I suppose I was in a lucky position where I could somehow manage to still pay my bills. And I always keep the confidence, the same way that I've kept the confidence of the 60 names that was on that letter that went to the IOC three years ago. Because I know that, you know, it's it's horrible and that the pylons that, that happen out there. Um, but you're right, the vast majority of people you know, have good common sense and do understand that this is wrong. And, but the, and the good thing is I do feel like we're turning a corner. It is beginning to change. I'm very yeah. excited for FINA's new rules, which will come out pre the world championships um, this summer. Um, we're told that they've gone one step further than USA swimming. And I believe that USA swimming was quite strong as in it would have been very difficult for, well, Leah would definitely not been able to compete and it would be quite difficult for most transgender women to meet those requirements. So if they've gone one step further than that's really good. And if that then can, you know, feed over into other governing bodies like the UCI cycling track and field, um, you know, then we are gradually getting somewhere. I still just think it's terribly sad that these governing bodies can't stand up for half of their competitors, though. Yeah. You know, it, it just breaks my heart that why is it that they seem to be, 
have their hands tied behind their back. They can't just turn around and say, do you know what? We want to protect young female athletes. Mm. It's our job to do that. Absolutely. Okay. That brings me to my last question for you, which is um, you talked about the letter that you and 60 people wrote to the IOC. You've mentioned the failures of the IOC to address this issue and to defend women and women's right to partake in elite sports. What do you think are the prospects for the IOC changing its mind, going back to reasonable rules? And I guess, I, I suppose what the IOC needs to do is to stop feeling pressured by these new ideologies, these new ways of thinking or, or identity politics, however we want to refer to it, and get back to what it's supposed to be doing, which is creating the space in which elite athletes can take part in fair competition. So uh, what are the prospects for that? And, and what would you say to the IOC now in terms of why it's so important for them to properly address this issue? Oh, I, I just have no faith in the IOC. Uh, you know, right. I don't think they've ever done that. Um, it took a long time to get women's sport even in the Olympic mm. Games. I mean, you know, Kubertown was never even particularly keen that, that women were allowed to represent at the Olympic Games. So he's no hero to me, I'm afraid. <laughs> yeah, they have had terrible track record. And, and I'm not sure how we get them to change that track record. You know, there's so many things that they need to change. It's not just the, the trans issue in sport. It's countries that they're picking for major events. Um, it's, you know, doping control, which is horrendous. I mean, Sochi was, I think, what, what was Sochi in 2014? We're still not sorted out, the, you know, the Russian doping problem. I mean, in Rio, we had swimmers that had received two bans that were allowed to actually still race, you know, immediately after the Sochi whole thing was was revealed. And I just feel so sorry for for young athletes because they were being put in the same position again. You know, the Winter Olympics recently with the skater, you know, that was not her choice yeah. to take those drugs. Yeah. That was a choice that was that was put on her by her coaches by by the state of Russia. And yet she became that terrible pawn that was stuck right in the middle of it, which was absolutely horrendous. And that was allowed because of the IOC. Yeah. So, you know, they've got to clean their house up in so many different directions. I don't really know where to start with regards to them. Um, all they ever do is, is kick the can down the street and pass the buck. But, you know, what's so very sad is that when they did decide to try to change the rules, they not once talked to the stakeholders themselves. They never once spoke to any of the competing athletes, female athletes. They just had trans activist doctors, transgender women doctors, and that's all they listened to, the activists. They didn't talk to any of the stakeholders involved in their sport. Sharon, thank you very much indeed. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.